ora, I'm Emil Donovan. And almost exactly 13 months ago, this was leading RNZ's midday report. This morning, Treasury released seven different scenarios on the possible economic impacts of COVID-19. They show unemployment can be kept below 10% and return to 5% in 2021 under Treasury's worst-case scenario in which New Zealand remains in alert level 3 and 4 for 12 months. Unemployment could reach 26%. To put that in perspective, that is comparable to the Great Depression. Unemployment during the global financial crisis, that hit only 6.7% here. So 26% is rather eye-watering. Now, we shouldn't be too harsh on the economists and the forecasters. We were heading into a global pandemic, completely uncharted waters, and, you know, just about everyone was flying blind. But as the lockdown lifted and time passed, the reality of unemployment constantly and positively belied expectations. The unemployment rates improved in the three months to June, falling to 4% from 4.2%. The chief economist from Kiwi Bank, Jared Kerr, describes it as unbelievable. When you, uh, when you scratch beneath the surface, there is some weakness across the labour market, as you would expect. So I think worse is yet to come, but geez, we, we are looking a lot better than what we thought a few months back. Even when things were at their worst and it is probably safe to use the past tense there, they were still a lot better than expected. The jobless rate for the three months to September rose uh, quite sharply, 5.3%. That was just below expectations. The previous quarter it was an unrealistic 4%. And in the latest unemployment stats released late last week, things seem to be getting back to normal. What are the numbers? Well, we were sort of expecting about 5%. That was what the Reserve Bank was expecting. That's what economists were expecting. And we got it 4.7%. But uneasy questions persist. How can our unemployment stats look similar to pre-COVID times? I mean, the bottom's fallen out of the tourism industry. Hospitality's taken a hit. Those workers can't all have picked up tools to help with the big construction boom. What about the stuff that doesn't show up in the figures? People who don't qualify for benefits or people who are still technically employed but their hours have been slashed. Today on The Detail, more than a year after we first went into lockdown, what's the state of the labour market? And is the headline unemployment statistic painting an unrealistically cheerful picture? Sarah Robson is RNZ's social issues reporter. Last week's unemployment statistics showed that the unemployment rate is 4.7%, which is down slightly on the previous quarter, where the unemployment rate was about 4.9% off a peak post-COVID of 53 back in September 2020. OK. 4.7%. That sounds kind of amazing. Is that is that kind of amazing? It somewhat has defied expectations. So back in last year's budget, Treasury had forecast that by June 2020, unemployment would hit 8.3% and it was going to hit 7.6% this year. None of that has happened. Back before the election, Treasury revised its forecasts again and it said there was going to be a lower peak. March 2022, 7.8%. So really, the unemployment rate has completely defied Treasury expectations thus far. And not just Treasury, right? Like all of the banks were picking over 8%. Some of the banks are picking over 10%. It is, I mean, I just, I find it wild. 
wild that the peak unemployment during this COVID thing so far, and fingers crossed, is 5.3%. Just crazy. I guess in the initial stages of the pandemic, no one sort of knew how bad it would get. Before the wage subsidy was implemented, that's when those initial forecasts were made no one sort of knew just how much government support there would be for those who would potentially lose their jobs. I remember reading in one of the proactive releases and feeling somewhat shocked that they'd initially thought that 320,000 people could lose their jobs because of COVID and therefore be eligible for a special government support payment for those who lost their jobs. One of the keys to keeping the unemployment numbers down was the wage subsidy. Here's independent economist Tony Alexander. Most of us were expecting the unemployment rate would increase pretty strongly from the 4% uh, rate of the start of 2020. I thought maybe we'd go 7.5%. Some people were saying 10%, but the peak was 5.2%. We sit at 4.7%. And so, yeah, why is it that we've got this happen? Well, I think one of the key reasons here is that when the global pandemic came along, businesses in New Zealand were really struggling to find the employees that they wanted. Labour was in short supply. And although the onset of the lockdown, et cetera, made uh, businesses you know, fearful of well, how much am I going to sell? Will I need my staff going forward? As we could see signs of the economy not being as bad as people were thinking June, July, August, businesses which might have been going to lay people off, they hadn't because they were getting wage subsidies, were going, yeah, no, I'm going to wait a little bit longer to see what happens. And this is where the wage subsidy scheme was fantastic policy because it removed that pressure for businesses to immediately slash costs, immediately react by laying people off. It bought time for businesses to uh, remember labour shortages and to see light at the end of the tunnel. And there's also sort of going back to what I was saying about uh, businesses experiencing labour shortages We've become an economy which is heavily dependent upon migrant labour of foreigners working here. And the numbers to note there would be ahead of the global financial crisis, about 4% of jobs in New Zealand were occupied by migrant labour. Going into this 14 months ago, it was about 8%. So we have seen some unemployment out there, but of course a lot of it has been of people who are here on on working visas. And a lot of them have gone back, not all of them have gone back, but that's been a cushioning factor. It doesn't explain jobs growth, but it helps explain the uh, limited nature of the rise in the unemployment rate. $14 billion has been spent providing that support to businesses, supporting more than 1.7 million jobs. People may have had their hours cut back, but they still maintain those connections to their jobs because their employers have literally been able to keep paying them and keep them on the books. Potentially, if that wage subsidy support hadn't come through, hadn't lasted as long as what it did, if the extension and the resurgence hadn't come through, we would have probably seen a higher unemployment rate. But Treasury, particularly in its forecasting, has said that the extended government support has has played a big part in keeping the unemployment rate down. So the headline unemployment number 4.7%, amazing, really genuinely amazing. Almost all economists were picking unemployment to hit at least 7%, with some forecasting 10% or even higher. In reality, barring a serious shock in the near future, the peak will have been 5.2% back in September last year, 
And even that number is way below the unemployment rate in 2012 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis when it hit 6.7%. The thing is, somewhat counterintuitively, unemployment is a bit of a crude metric when assessing the labour market. There's an increasing focus around the world in recent years on what's called the underutilisation rate. And that sits at 12.2%. And that counts not only the people who are officially classified as out of work, as in they don't have a job and they are ready to start in four weeks and they are actively looking for work. You've got to sort of tick those boxes. It is also counting um, people who are working maybe less than 30 hours a week and would like to work some some higher hours there. People who would uh, like to take on another job, but they're not actively looking for one um, at the moment. Maybe they're discouraged. It's a far broader... Um, sort of measure. But the key thing to note here is that the unemployment rate change and the underutilisation rate change, they move together. They're just at different levels. But if unemployment's rising, underutilisation rate is rising. If unemployment's getting better, then the underutilisation rate is getting better uh, as well. And it doesn't really have any great implications for monetary policy of, oh, we should slash interest rates again because the underutilisation rate is 12.2%. Well, well, no, the average for the underutilisation rate is probably around about 11% or, or, or something like that. So it doesn't by itself suggest, well, we need to radically make extra stimulus to the economy. It might be someone, a woman working part-time in a cafe. Maybe she was working 20 hours a week, but actually post-COVID that's been cut back to 10. Yep. So that person would be reflected if they were able and wanting to work more hours. We'd see them in the underutilisation rate, but we won't see that in the unemployment rate. But can you imagine having your wages cut back from what you were earning at 20 hours a week versus what you are getting at 10 hours a week. You're getting half the money, yeah. You're getting half the money. So where do you make that up? Mm. And I guess this is something we're potentially seeing coming through in the hardship assistance statistics and the demand that we're seeing to food banks because people's budgets have taken a major squeeze Mm. and something's got to give. Is that reflected in the stats around hardship benefits and food bank stuff? I mean, do we have numbers on those to show an increase or is that anecdotal that we're hearing? So throughout the pandemic, MSD's actually provided really solid data on just how much demand that they've been seeing. So back in the March 2020 quarter, which will capture some of the initial stages of the Level 4 lockdown, there were almost uh, 600,000 hardship grants, uh, hardship assistance grants handed out at a cost of 173, almost $174 million. For the March 2021 quarter, so the quarter just being... Mm-hmm. That's sitting at 671,000 hardship assistance grants at a cost of $217 million. Now, this is down from the peak, but that's still not back to pre-COVID levels. So that spending is still pretty huge. So this is things like emergency housing grants. It's food grants. It's also help for people who can't pay for things like their car repairs, their power bills. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you might be able to get hardship assistance, and it's not necessarily always a grant that you don't have to pay back. It could be a loan or an advance on your benefit. But the fact that that hasn't returned to pre-COVID levels and the fact that that spending is still remaining pretty high is a very clear indication that many, many, many more households are facing a real big squeeze. What's the story when it comes to job seeker benefits? Those must have been up and down like a yo-yo over the past few months. 
They definitely haven't been yo-yoing. No. They've been steadily increasing. So just before the country went into the Level 4 lockdown, there were about 145,000 people on job seeker support. So this is the main unemployment benefit. Four weeks later, that number had jumped to 175,000. That increase of 30,000 is the biggest, fastest increase in people going on to the benefit that the Ministry of Social Development has ever seen. This mm. exceeded the global financial crisis, you mm. know, a decade ago. Mm. And that figure, you know, it has continued to steadily increase over the year. Job seeker benefit numbers are still nowhere near back to pre-COVID levels. It's sitting for the, to the March quarter 2021 at just over 200,000 people. And that's potentially not reached its peak yet. So when we're talking about job seeker benefits, do we have any projections as to like what the peak was going to be when it comes to this? What we do know is from the briefing to the incoming Minister of Social Development, Carmel Cipollone. So this is the briefings that officials give ministers um, when they come into government after an election. They were expecting job seeker support to peak in January 2022 at 280,000 recipients. That's twice what JobSeeker was at when we went into COVID. That's exactly right. And it's still a long increase from what we're at now at just over 200,000. It's tempting, isn't it, to think that we've kind of moved past this, that the worst is possibly over. And I suppose, in a sense, things didn't get as bad as many economists were predicting, but we're still very much not out of this. There could be a long tail to COVID. That's exactly right. And I think this is what a lot of charities, beneficiary advocates, places like the Auckland City Mission, the Salvation Army are really concerned about is this long tail of COVID job losses and the impact that's going to have on people's incomes. So what happens to families who spend a protracted amount of time working lower hours, working 20 hours as opposed to 40 hours? What happens to families where one of the breadwinners loses their job and isn't eligible for the benefit because their partner is still earning? We know from the Welfare Expert Advisory Group's report they told the government that benefit levels are set too low. So they're not livable, they're actually sitting below the poverty line. We're seeing those hardship assistance grants continue to remain at high levels. Food banks are still experiencing fairly high demand. It certainly hasn't dropped back to what it was pre-COVID. The concern is what happens to families who are struggling and are continuing to struggle and could be struggling for some time yet. Jacinda Ardern, the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, as well as being the Prime Minister, she was told in her briefing post-election that child poverty is likely to increase because of COVID-19 with material hardship. So that's the key kind of measure that's uh, looking at whether families are able to buy the basics like shoes, uh, whether they can afford to uh, go and see a doctor, put healthy food on the table. Material hardship rates are expected to rise strongly because of COVID-19. So there are a lot of indicators there that actually life is still really hard for a lot more people than there were before the pandemic. Mm, Yeah, the idea being just because you have a job, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is enough to live on. That's exactly it. 
There are obviously still big issues with the labour market in New Zealand. The unemployment and underutilisation rates among Māori, for example, are more than twice the rate for European New Zealanders. And figures for Pacifica are even worse, at more than 10% unemployment and nearly 20% underutilisation. But all in all, the economic catastrophe predicted by many economists simply didn't eventuate. All of which invites the question, how did they get it so wrong? Economics, it's a social science, so we're theorising about if this thing changes, what will that do to people's willingness to work, to, to, to spend? And so economics is, while everybody thinks it's about forecasting where things are going, it's more about... If nothing else is changing, if you change this tax rate, what's the impact going to be? If you change this interest rate, what's the impact going to be? So we economists, that's what we learn, how to answer questions like that. But trying to put everything that's happening around you together and then generate a cohesive set of uh, forecasts is, is a dog's breakfast at the best of time. And with all the technological changes, international competition, flows of labour around the world, etc., increasingly over the past 10 to 15 years, most of our economic models don't work any longer. So in some regard, it's not necessarily all that surprising that everywhere um, around the world, economic forecasts of the weakness a year ago, thankfully, we're, we're way, way too pessimistic and things have turned out better. We didn't want to give the forecast. People keep asking us, and much as we will say to them, for, for many years I've been saying to people, none of us have actually got our interest rate forecast right on this planet since about 2007. We didn't get the GFC, and then following the GFC, every time we said, oh, our economy's going up, we got that right, uh, therefore inflation's going to go up, so interest rates will go up. The inflation didn't appear. The interest rates uh, didn't go up, or they went up and they went back down again relatively quickly. And I can recall doing a great number of webinars during the seven weeks of lockdown last year and saying, OK, you're all here online, you're listening to me, you're hoping I'm going to give a forecast for where I see things going. Well, the starting point for any sort of scenario is to ask yourself, what usually happens when we have a global pandemic? And then I can hear the laughter <laughs> down the line, you see, because we have no experience. So pure guesswork, and that's why early on I, I was saying to people, you know, the negative risks lie out there, but here's a lot of insulating factors. I'm going to give you a list of reasons why you maybe shouldn't close your business down straight away and start laying off people. And on that list, of course, was low interest rates, wage subsidy scheme, $10 billion we Kiwis normally spend overseas. We're now going to be spending um, in New Zealand, running bang, bang, bang through a whole lot of things there. And my aim at the time was to make people go, I'm just going to wait a bit longer before I make any radical sort of slicing decisions. And thankfully, the green shoots appeared early enough that you know, businesses didn't really get into the uh, slash and burn. Tony, we keep getting told, you know, and we have been consistently told over the past over the past 12, 15 months, you know, to temper our expectations, even when good stats have come out, we, you know, we've been told, you know, don't bust out the champagne yet. There could still be a shock coming around the corner. Is that still the case or is it safe to say when it comes to employment anyway, that the worst is actually probably behind us? Probabilistically, as in probably slash hopefully, the worst is behind us in terms of the shock to our economy and our society and our health from COVID-19. Um, and one has to be careful here because we look at what's happening in a lot of third world countries developing economies overseas. And quite clearly, things are getting astonishingly worse over there. 
But I guess what's of greatest relevance for New Zealand is what's happening in our export destinations, the countries that buy our largely minimally processed uh, commodity exports. What's happening across there? Well, in Australia, you're looking at boom conditions over there, especially uh, for uh, construction and for the mineral sector. You're looking at rapid rollout of vaccinations quite successfully in the United Kingdom. takes about 2.5% of what we export. Um, across in the United States, I think that's about 11%. And then, of course, in China as well, where they got things under control relatively soon in the piece. And all of these things that we consumers have been buying the past 12 months, the spas, the electric bikes, etc., so many of them are made in China that their economy is going gangbusters and could easily grow between 8 and 12% this year, 30% of our exports go to to China. Mm. And so that is very positive for our economy. So when I look at the high commodity prices that we're receiving at the moment, about 16, 1.6% higher than they were on average at the end of 2019, I look at the high level of job security out there, I look at people's wealth levels that have have gone up, and I throw in a few other things, uh, etc., continued low interest rates. As an economist, I look at that and go, my list of factors pushing up our growth is far longer than my list of factors which may restrain growth in our economy in the next wee while. And so I give a positive message to people. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Tony Alexander and Sarah Robson. Kaki te ano.